This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. The Jews distinguish between the law, the prophets, and the writings. What the Jews called the law is called by biblical scholars the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Dr. Michael Morales is professor of biblical studies at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, and he's a teaching elder in the PCA. He served as chair of biblical studies and professor of Old Testament and Great Works at Reformation Bible College. He's also been associate pastor at Grace Presbyterian Church, PCA, in Stewart, Florida. He did his doctoral work in the Pentateuch at Trinity College, University of Bristol in the United Kingdom. He's author of Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord? A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus. That's in the series New Studies in Biblical Theology, published by InterVarsity Press in 2015. Dr. Morales and his wife Elise have four boys, and he's on campus this week to talk with us about the theology of the Camp of Israel, Numbers 1 through 6. You can find that audio at wscal.edu or via our new iPhone and Android apps. Hi, Mike. Welcome to Office Hours. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Miami, Florida, and spent most of my life there in Florida. I pastored for a little bit in Northeast Tennessee and made my way back into Florida and most recently have been in Greenville, South Carolina the past three years. All right. Very good. What part of Miami were you raised in? Cutler Ridge area. And tell us about your upbringing. Were you raised in the faith or how did that go? I was, thanks be to God. My parents were nominal Catholics and they converted to true Christianity when I was probably four or five years old. And so although we weren't, you know, reformed or knew much about systematic theology, we were raised, uh, my brother and sister and I, in, in a loving Christian home. And how did you come to discover the Reformed Confession? I was pastoring in Northeast Tennessee, and on our way to Gatlinburg, I would always make my wife stop us at this Christian book outlet store. 90% of it was nonsense, but one day I ran into a book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, his first volume of his sermons on the book of Acts, and I couldn't put it down and really got into his writing and also listening to his sermons, and that kind of led to a lot of other areas like Banner of Truth, etc. So the Lord really used his ministry. And when was that? That was in, I want to say, around the 2000 mark. Okay, very good. In what sort of church setting were you ministering as you encountered Lloyd-Jones and other Reformed writers? It's the movement known as Stone Campbell Movement. Oh, interesting. Independent, Baptistic. Oh, very good. So, this is interesting. Tell us about some of the distinctives, so the listener knows some of the distinctives of the Stone Campbell Movement. They're very big on baptism. Okay. And because they don't really have a creed, you know, it's sort of no confession but Christ. Okay. So when people say no creed but Christ, that slogan comes from the Stone Campbell movement. Mm-hmm. All right. So they emerged out of the awakening. So what you'll find is the theology sort of differs from congregation to congregation. Some of them, it'll be basically a decent Baptist church. Others, it looks a lot more like Catholicism, where baptism is pushed almost as the act of regeneration, and you don't have any assurance. It's not by faith alone, but you need to be baptized to have those sins washed away. And works are very important, and not just as fruit and evidence— as we would say, but at least sometimes you hear them saying or read them talking about works as part of the way we present ourselves to God. 
That's right. So they have a strong doctrine of perseverance, but not the perseverance of the saints as we know it. It's where you need to keep yourself in by your obedience or you fall away. So in some ways, you get in by baptism Mm -hmm. and you stay in by works. Yes, yes. That sounds familiar. Yeah, very sad. (laughs) Yeah, tragically familiar. Yeah. So this is interesting. So you read Lloyd-Jones, and what did you make of that? I mean, did it seem like this was crazy, or what was it that attracted you? You know, in God's providence, it really was the right book to come across because that Stone Camel movement really makes much of the early chapters of Acts. And, you know, the doctrine of the apostles, the breaking of bread, etc. And, you know, I had been preaching, I think, for a few years, morning and evening, and also doing Sunday morning Bible studies for Sunday school Wednesday nights. So I had gotten to where I could really judge whether a commentary was helpful or not. And as soon as I began reading him, it was like being plunged into the ocean of God's being and character. And that's what impressed me the most. How did you end up in pastoral ministry? Where did you do your undergraduate? I did my undergraduate at Palm Beach Atlantic. It was a college at the time. Now it's a university. And I was one of those who was undecided. I loved art and everything dealing with art, but I ended up getting a business degree because that was practical. (laughs) And I found myself working at a bank. I was first a commodities broker for a little bit and then a business analyst for an international bank. And I was just bored out of my mind. And the Lord really used that misery. And of course, you know, if that's someone's calling, they can do it unto the Lord's glory, of course. But for me, the cubicle life wasn't for me, and it led me to just cry out to the Lord. I wanted to do kingdom work that I really felt like would be more of a blessing in working with the church. And that led to thoughts of going to seminary, and the Lord was really gracious. But now you're a pastor, and you have a congregation, and you're reading Lloyd-Jones, which leads to reading other Reformed writers. Mm-hmm. That probably created something of a crisis, I would think, because you're in a setting which, although they say no creed but Christ, there are some things that you have to say and things that you can't say. So there is a creed, it's just not necessarily written down. Yeah, that's right. And now your views are changing. So what did you do? Well, my library grew, and overnight, you know, I had— <laughs> That's the first mark of a Reformed guy. Yes. He starts buying books, yeah. And my preaching changed. In God's providence, I think it was very good for me because my preaching changed, and certainly the way I preached the gospel changed. But rather than using labels and terms like total depravity or Calvinism, it forced me to do precisely what Lloyd-Jones was so well at, is to develop from the text humanity's need that there's no help or hope apart from the work of Christ. And by and large, the Lord was blessing the preaching. And because I wasn't using these buzzwords, and because, again, I'm in a context where there's not much biblical literacy, specifically in theology, I don't think that they knew I was giving them Calvinist doctrine. And also some of the experiences there, the way that a lot of the issues and problems that were being dealt with, the Lord used that also to teach me the beauties of Presbyterianism and why it's good to have brothers to work alongside in the session and why we need a Presbytery that is able to go in individual congregations and deal with issues. So the Lord was very gracious throughout those years, and I was very green. I didn't even have an internship. So when I look back, I still feel sorry for the flock over there, and I I wish I had more experience under my belt to have been a greater blessing to them. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So what happened? Did they become reformed or did you end up leaving? Or I ended up leaving. 
This was, to make a long story short, this was sort of these uh, Hapula McCoy situations. It was basically one large family, and every four years or so, sadly, they had a civil war. I was so naive, it took me about a year and a half to realize that two of the elders really never talked to each other. They were brothers, and their children and grandchildren were at each other's throats. And that started happening once more, and I was already sensing that I wanted to be in a Reformed context. The Lord was blessing the preaching. They asked me, you know, they begged my wife and I to stay, but we were ready to move out into a different context. So how did you end up ministering in a Reformed context? I went back to seminary. I had an MA, and I went to Knox Seminary in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and I just did the whole MDiv over. My father happened to be an elder down in Miami at one of these churches, and so there were lots of prayers because in that context, basically, denominations are of the devil, etc., and so it was almost like I apostatized. But um, the Lord was gracious again just through little phone conversations. By the time I moved, a lot of my family, my parents, brother, sister, had already moved into what— you know, we would recognize now as like a Reformed Baptist. And so there was no falling out with family, but they had a falling out with our home church there in Miami when they eventually transitioned out of that context. One of the things you had to work through were your convictions about the nature of the church and the progress of redemptive history, the progress of revelation of redemption, the covenants and all that. How did you work through that? I mean, it's one thing to read Lloyd-Jones and see divine sovereignty and uh, free grace. It's another thing to embrace a wholehearted, you know, full-throated covenant theology, the way that we confess it in the Reformed Confessions. Part of this, and and I still thank the Lord for my early years and upbringing in little church in this context, I had a dear pastor who was like a father to me. And the one thing that they did value was the Word of God, even if they didn't understand it as well, and sort of every generation reinvents the wheel because of their lack of confessions, etc. But the pastor's wife, who was my kindergarten teacher, would always come and read the Bible, mark it, read the Bible. And so in many ways, my theology was sort of groping already in the right direction. And part of what the Lord used was when I finally found a systematic theology written by someone in that Stone Camel movement where I could realize, well, I don't agree with this. I do agree with that. But by and large, when I'd meet with other ministers or go to the conventions that this group had, they were just big into marketing the church and just instinctively in God's kindness realized, no, this is wrong. Uh, and everything I found— There's not much marketing in the early chapters of Acts. Right, right. <laughs> and so, you know, through Lloyd-Jones, uh, I mean, I've just—I went through a season where everything I read was a systematic theology, like Burkhoff, and it was through reading those. And really, the Lord used Augustine in mighty ways for the predestination piece of the puzzle. I remember reading that aloud to my wife and both of us just being taken into his arguments and the Spirit using that strongly. So by the time I left, I had read a lot more than I had for my MA and felt very comfortable and sure on what I believed, which was Calvinist doctrine, and I think what would accord with most of your Reformed theologies. And was it difficult to embrace the sort of traditional Reformed understanding of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant, I will be a God to you and to your children, and seeing that as continuous with the new covenant? For some people, that's a real struggle and difficulty. And if you're in a Baptistic context, you may never have seen a Reformed church administer the covenant to infants. Mm -hmm. And so it can be very foreign. And, you know, people think it's medieval or Roman Catholic. And even if they think, well, yeah, this makes sense, but I've never seen it. And it seems foreign and odd. You know, it was very interesting when I was looking at this movement as a pastor in this church, part of my thinking was, let me go to the roots of our movement and find out where we 
got derailed. And it ended up that I followed Alexander Campbell back into Presbyterianism. I mean, he was from Scotland, came to America, became a Baptist and started this movement. And so I basically followed his journey backward. But the other thing that was helpful, I think, because we had these Presbyterian roots was things like the Christian church disciples of Christ are amillennial. So we never really had the dispensationalism that I had to work through. It wasn't in my DNA. The other aspect was because we weren't in the debate with the Presbyterians, you know, that you might get Reformed Baptists, there was none of that polemic. So the church that I grew up in, you know, if an eight-year-old confessed Christ, they baptized the eight-year-old. And in my experience, I think I was probably converted at age four or five as soon as my parents converted. You know, it's kind of silly, but I remember my Sunday school teacher giving us the gospel, and it was to embrace Christ. And I remember unbuttoning the top of my shirt, and she asked me why, and it was to let Jesus into my heart. And (laughs) I don't know if that was the the moment, but I— Sure, who knows? But in many ways— I still look back and wish I was as close to God now as I was then as a child. Mm. And so these experiences the Lord used to really teach me, you know, there is something good about being raised in a Christian home. And it's a great benefit of the covenant to be a part of the church. Sure, you experienced it, right? Even though your household may not have been described that way, right. you still experienced the benefits, at least some of them, of the covenant of grace. That's right. You were raised in a Christian home, you were taken to church, and uh, You were exposed to the preaching of the gospel, Mm -hmm. we hope at least sometimes. So that's fascinating. And it's always, to me, encouraging to hear people's stories and to hear how the Lord has used their circumstances in various ways to bring them to where they are. So now you become a prof, you know, first at Reformation Bible College in Orlando and now at GPTS in Greenville. How did you become a prof? What is it that moved you to decide to become an academic? Why didn't you remain a full-time preaching pastor and do something honorable? What? Right. <laughs> That's actually a convicting question. When I went back to school and I was at, at Knox Seminary, they basically, after three years, offered to hire me and for me to start working on a PhD while I was teaching. And to be honest, I was just so burnt out still from the previous ministry. You know, some have said that one year in a mountain church is like 10 years in a city church. And I really experienced that. We just dealt with so many issues, uh, things from suicide to other tragedies and, and then just the infighting. and Dueling banjos is probably not a tune you right. listen to with a lot of joy. <laughs> right. And it was a rural area. A lot of the elders were simple, godly folk but they would not teach. So I had to do everything. And I was a deacon as well. If I thought someone was going to be baptized, I had to be there early Sunday morning scrubbing the baptistry. And I was just so tired and wiped out that I wasn't ready. And so I gladly accepted the offer to teach. And in God's kindness, I began my PhD studies under Gordon Wenham and just became so fascinated with pursuing different rabbit trails in my studies, in biblical studies, that I enjoyed it. But then I had this guilt complex because, you know, like you said, to be a pastor is more honorable in the eyes of many. But also I knew that I had many brothers who were pastoring. They were in the trenches and here I was yeah. in the ivory tower. And so I always <laughs> had a guilt complex. I was never happy until one of my coworkers took me aside and he said, you just need to get over it and enjoy it. And that's what I've been trying to do. We have seasons. So who knows? I'm open to Lord's calling to pastoral ministry again in a full-time context, but right now I have enough projects that I'm working on and so excited about that I'm thankful for the time that I have to study God's Word more deeply. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary, California has good news. We're building a place for you to live on campus. In the spring of 2018, we'll open a new residential village of eight residential buildings, 64 apartments, including one, two, and three bedroom units, and a commons. 
where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary, California, on the benefits of our new residential village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential village. It is a privilege, and yet all of us are ministers, most all of us, and we've all, most of us, been in pastoral ministry or are in pastoral ministry, so we feel that tension. I certainly do. I was just talking with somebody recently about, you know, my farewell sermon from my first congregation, and I remember that like it was yesterday. There are things I would do differently, (laughs) but, uh, you know, that act of leaving a congregation and going off to grad school, as exciting as it was looking forward, you know, all the things you're going to learn and meet, the people you're going to meet, the things you're going to do, and the uncertainty of it all, who knows how it's all going to work out, mm-hmm. yet walking away from a congregation to which you had a call and you know these people and you've hatched them, matched them, dispatched them, you know, been involved in their lives so intimately, and then suddenly that relationship comes to an end. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit like a death or a divorce or something. That's right. So now you're a prof, and what are some of the projects that you're working on now? Well, the big one I've been working on for a year and a half or so has been a commentary on the book of Numbers. And, uh, you know, it's a mid-level commentary. It's the Apollo series for InterVarsity Press. And I was explaining to the students a while ago during the Q&A that to do something like a, a summary sort of commentary where you're a thousand feet in the air would have been the easiest thing. But once you sort of get into the text of numbers, it's amazing just how many problem texts there are or texts that can be easily understood in two opposing ways. And so it's been a massive work. It's been a delight, though. I've really come to a greater understanding of the Pentateuch as a whole through it. But It's a lot of labor for sure. And when do you expect to turn that into the publisher? Well, the current due date is... Due dates were meant to be broken. Yes, (laughs) and they already have been, sadly is uh, at the end of summer 2018. And I've agreed to some other projects I'm excited about, like a BT on the Exodus and redemption. And so... When you say BT, you mean a biblical biblical theology. Biblical theology. Yes, thank you. And so I do need to get it done, but you want to do it right. And I doubt that I'm going to be finished next summer. As to the talk you gave to the seminary this morning in Convocation, you were talking about what we would think of as the Old Testament church. Many people who think of themselves as Christians today have a very low view of the visible institutional church. When American Christians hear what the Belgian Confession says and what Cyprian is supposed to have said, he may not actually have said it this way, but he certainly taught it, that outside the church, meaning the visible church, there is no salvation— That's a shocking thing for people Mm -hmm. because they think principally of the Christian faith in individual terms, that fundamentally Christianity is about my personal, private relationship with the Lord, and I go to church when I want, when it's convenient, when I don't have something else to do, but my relationship to the visible church isn't of the essence of my relationship to God. That's not really the picture in numbers, is it? No, that's right. What I tried to bring out in the lecture today is especially the early chapters of Numbers, which are often relegated to non-importance. You know, typically you're going to have those chapters headed by something like preparing to leave Sinai, when rather (laughs) 
we have the culmination, I believe, of the covenant relationship with God at Sinai. And so you have God dwelling in the midst of his people, the way he methodically arranges the tribes around him with the buffer zone of the Levites. This is a picture of the city of God. And the thing that Numbers, I think, has to contribute is this high ecclesiology. We really undervalue the church today. As you were saying, we're very individualistic, but this is the place where God has promised to be in their midst through his Holy Spirit. These are the brothers and sisters we'll be dwelling in eternity with, and God has promises for the gathered church that we don't have in our individual prayer closet. And the more upside down this world becomes, the more I treasure the church and the more I treasure every time of fellowship we have with the people of God. It's such a privilege to be a member of the covenant of grace and to be on this march through the wilderness with our brothers and sisters and to carry each other's burdens. It's the greatest thing in the world right now. It is true that, you know, you're in your daily work, Monday through Saturday, uh, Monday through Friday, and then on Sunday, you gather together with the people of Christ, and, you know, we all name Christ as Lord and Savior, we all confess the Trinity, we have a common faith, we confess our sins, we receive a formal declaration of forgiveness, we hear the law and the gospel preached, we receive the Lord's Supper, you know, Lord willing, we see, you know, converts baptized and covenant children baptized and initiated into the visible covenant community. There really isn't anything like that in the world. I mean, we can gather together in a lot of other settings, but those gatherings are really very different. You know, let's say a bunch of guys get together to watch a Clemson football game on Saturday or better, a Nebraska football game <laughs> on Saturday. Nobody as a, you know, sort of when you get together, you don't confess your sins first, right? And grant forgiveness to one another. And there is a kind of communion, but not the same kind of communion. Right. We are tasting the powers of the age to come. We are by faith gathering at the heavenly Mount Zion where Christ is and the souls of those who have been redeemed and the angelic hosts. There's just nothing like it, but it's by faith. And I think that's why so many people miss it, even sadly, those who are members of the church. And you're finding this in numbers. Now, that's going to surprise some listeners who maybe haven't even read numbers. Maybe they've looked at it here or there, and they've heard some things from numbers. There are some passages that are fairly well-known, fairly famous. But they may not have sat down and actually read numbers from beginning to end. So can you orient us a little bit? What is the book of numbers? Why is it called numbers, for instance? Well, you've got the census with which the book begins that often leads people to skip it and go on to Deuteronomy. <laughs> it's like, uh-oh, tax records keep that's going. Right. <laughs> that's right. And that's just part of the culture gap. In the ancient Near East, this would have really underscored that we're at an important section. And you also have the other census in Numbers 26. Okay, hold on now. That's very interesting. You just said that what we see in our culture is sort of bureaucratic information. In their culture, they would have seen that as a signal. Wait a minute. Stop. Pay attention. This is really important. That is interesting. Why is that? I don't know why. Okay. <laughs> that is that okay. the way. But in their culture, to see that list of names would have signaled, I want you to really pay attention here. Right. If you look at the genre of texts that are preserved, these are the kind that okay. we get. All right. So in the ancient Near Eastern world, there were other texts like that that we know were important. Mm -hmm. So we can use that to help us understand numbers. Yeah. And I think there is the whole aspect of genealogy and lines and everyone fitting in their proper place. But the real drama of that is that the census is the preliminary to finding your place in this camp of Israel in the wilderness. It's very much like the psalm that talks about being a citizen of Zion and being born there. This is an incredible roll call of God's people. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. 
So God has always had a visible people. Right. It started before there was a national people constituted at Sinai, and it continued after. And those are our people then when we read numbers. We're reading family history, church history, and we're reading church history under the types and shadows. Now, earlier you said something about the Israelites in Numbers being arranged in a specific way, and you talked about that a little bit this morning. Can you go through that for us? You have the 12 tribes arranged according to the four points of the compass, oriented toward the east because the tabernacle is three tribes on either side. It makes this square formation, and you have degrees of holiness, so there's concentric squares The inner camp is the camp of the Levites with Aaron and his household on the eastward side and then God's camp in the center. And these get connected together as one camp traveling together throughout the wilderness. And what I was laboring to try to set forth in the convocation lecture today is that this is really a glimpse of the city of God. This becomes the ideal picture of God's people. We see it coming up in Ezekiel's vision at the end of his book. It comes up at the end of the book of Revelation in the city of God, the way it's described with a four-square city with the three gates all the way around in square formation and God's presence in the center. And I also brought up the example of the Essenes at Qumran and some of their writings. They also allude to the wilderness camp as if they understood its theology, that this is part of what God has given us. This is the ideal picture of the covenant community. One of the things you said this morning I thought that was so edifying is that God says, I will be a God to you and you will be my people. That's the essence of the covenant promise. For example, that's how Jeremiah summarizes it in Jeremiah 31. And um, that's the Abrahamic promise. And Numbers is a reflection of the realization in a typological way, a temporary way, of that promise, right, that he really is dwelling in their midst. So this isn't something you want to pass over. This is something you want to recognize. Yahweh Elohim said to Abraham, I will be your God and you'll be my people. And here it is. He was their God and they were his people. That's right. In many ways, it's the climax of the Sinai revelation. So God enters into covenant with his people. He gives them his dwelling, but they're not yet living the covenant life of God in their midst until these chapters of Numbers, Hmm. where he arranges them around his dwelling and he's literally in the midst of his people. And then that section ends in uh, chapter six with the blessing of God, the ironic benediction, pouring out the light of his blessing over the entire camp. So that if you were to be anywhere on earth, you'd want to be in that camp in the wilderness and receive the blessing of God. So when the minister stands up at the end of the service and announces the ironic benediction, he's re-pronouncing the blessing that God pronounced on his covenant people at the end of this section of the camp of the saints. So that's a glorious word that's being spoken. It is. We need to teach our people more deeply about the theological significance of Reformed worship or your basic biblical liturgy. You know, some see it as a closing prayer, and it just makes me cringe whenever I see as soon as a sermon ends, people sneaking off. And, and you'd think, really, if you understood, you would have shown up to receive that blessing. And the last thing you want to do is to leave shy of being in the presence of God's gathered people and to receive that blessing. And this is all stuff that you're working on in the commentary that's forthcoming. Yes. All right. Very good. Well, this is very edifying. There's one last thing that I want to hit on, and that is you also spoke of a vertical typology. So we understand about types and shadows in history, looking forward in history. So there are ways in which what happens under Moses and in Numbers you know, looks forward to Jesus and to the new covenant. But what is this about vertical? Tell us about that. 
The best way to explain it is probably, I think I used in the lecture Exodus 25.9, where we see that the plans that God gives to Moses specifically for the dwelling, the tabernacle, is clearly based off of the pattern of the heavenly reality. And so the tabernacle becomes the earthly counterpart of Yahweh's heavenly home. And when we come to, for example, Solomon's dedicatory prayer for the temple, continually there in 1 Kings 8, we read the phrase, when they pray toward this place, you here in heaven, your heavenly abode. And so all throughout the Old Testament, there's the understanding that there's a heavenly reality and an earthly copy. When we come to the book of Hebrews, you know, so many New Testament scholars say, well, this is Platonism. No, this is anchored deeply (laughs) in the Old Testament. That's really important. That's right. People see that and they call it Hellenizing, but it's not Hellenizing. It means you haven't, you who are accusing Hebrews of being Hellenized, you haven't understood your Old Testament properly. Because people often assume, and the listener may not know this, that the Old Testament is really about this life and there isn't much interest in the life hereafter or heaven. But in fact, there's a lot of interest Mm -hmm. in the Hebrew Bible, in the life after this, in eternal life, and in fellowship with God and in heaven. So Hebrews says that Abraham was seeking a city whose builder and maker is God. Yes. So he had what sometimes we call an eschatological faith, a heavenly faith, Mm -hmm. as well as looking forward to a future realization of the fulfillment of the promises. And he's employing this vertical typology throughout his letter. You know, he's dealing with this potentially embarrassing question, well, how could Christ be a priest if he's not a Levite? And he goes through pains to explain that the Levites belong to this earthly copy system. And if he was a Levite, he'd be offering you know, sacrifices at the copy. But as it is, he entered heaven itself, the counterpart to the earthly holy of holies. But then also when he describes corporate worship, we are ascending by faith to the heavenly Mount Zion, Hebrews 12. And the reality we've entered into, which is vertical, and it's also, as you said, the future reality. So the future new Jerusalem when it descends out of heaven. So right now our vertical taste of heaven is a four taste of what we'll have in the new creation in the eschaton. And you're reflecting on things that Gerhardus Voss wrote That's right. in the early 20th century. He wrote essays on this. He wrote a whole volume called Biblical Theology. All of that now is available in print or through logos. Mm-hmm. So if the listener's interesting, interested, uh, can follow up on that. There's a wonderful little essay by Voss on true and truth, where he meditates on this business of vertical typology. That is, Scripture looking up as well as looking forward. That's right. And those heavenly realities entering into history, and particularly when we're gathered together as the covenant people of God. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been great to have you here on campus, and I'm grateful for the lecture. It was edifying. I know the students were encouraged, and uh, we wish you the Lord's blessing on your continued ministry. Thank you for being with us. It's a great joy. Lord bless you as well. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.